So firstly, um, really want to acknowledge and thank you all for your practice. You know, Jill and I today is really the first time we got to see who we're with. And there's a shift that happens, I think for us, it's fair to say us, um, when that connection gets made in that way. So really it was um, a joy and a gift to hear what's going on for you and how the practice is unfolding for each of you. And then there's this amazing thing that happens with the tide. I've never seen anything like it. And the boats, they just wait, like they must come for a couple of days. They're just there, then they're on the sand, and then they wait for the water to come back in. So I'll have tales to tell when I get back to New York, New Jersey. You know, the tulips and the tide. So um, it feels timely to be offering you all a bit of reflection on the hindrances, you know, from what we heard today. And I think I said in one of my groups, and um, I know Jill and I were speaking about this, that sometimes the hindrances are even slipperier, slipperier for those of us who have been at this for a time, because we think we got it. And then we'll be in the vortex wondering what's wrong. And it's like, oh, a hindrance. Whereas for the folks where this is a newer thing, there's this interest and there's this um, energy around what's happening, what's going on. How do I figure this out? How will this be? So I think it'll offer something um, on both ends as well as the middle in terms of practice. From the Dhammapada, mind is the forerunner of all things. If one speaks or acts with an impure mind, suffering follows, like the wheel that follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. If one speaks or acts with a pure mind, Happiness follows, like the shadow that never leaves. So if you haven't noticed already, distractions come, right? They come in all sizes, shapes, flavors. One of the categories of these distractions in the Dhamma are the hindrances. They're called hindrances because they block the development of both components of meditation, mindfulness and concentration. Because the word hindrance can have a negative connotation, and yes, we do want to transform or eradicate or weed them out, it doesn't mean that they are to be repressed, avoided, or condemned. As a matter of fact, 
that would actually just perpetuate them even more, the resistance to them, the wanting it to be different. Practicing mindfulness is easy. Remembering to do so is difficult. So one of the things that I like to do sometimes is to go to the dictionary. So I went to the dictionary and I looked up hindrance. <clears throat> this is what it said. Something immaterial that interferes with or delays action or progress. A difficulty. A factor causing trouble in achieving a positive result or tending to produce a negative result. A barrier, a roadblock. Any condition that makes it difficult to make progress or to achieve an objective. So I think in this case, there's a alignment or there's a, a closeness to what the, uh, I don't remember which dictionary it was, but the uh, English dictionary to the poly interpretation of this word done by our scholars and monastics. So by now, most all of us, at some point or another, have come upon many of the forces in the mind which can make it difficult to stay attentive to the present moment experience. These forces run the gamut from weak to powerful. What we all have experienced to varying degrees is that we are hampered in our ability to remain mindful, to develop concentration, and to have clear insight. Our attention is pulled in many directions other than where we wish it to be, to land, and interferes with our effort to meditate. Anyone having that experience? These distractions can actually come to offer the fodder through which we strengthen and deepen our practice. So I really want to underscore that because um, too often or so often, the hindrances are looked at as a problem or as something's wrong or something's out of alignment or out of whack, where the actuality is that working with the hindrances is one of the most um, formidable and strengthening ways to develop concentration and a healthy, mature practice. Even when we have the best of intentions to stay focused and present, these forces can propel us into states of preoccupation and distracted thinking. The good news is these forces and challenges offer an opportunity for the deepening of practice. They are not bad. They're not personal. It is a part of the path of practice to be mindful of them. These forces can serve us by forming the basis for cultivating awareness and wisdom. It is a necessary progression of practice to investigate the forces of distraction and agitation with the utmost care and honor for they lay before us the opportunity to break through the clouds of confusion and reactivity that our minds frequently dwell in. We must understand their true nature 
and how they work, as it is much easier to find freedom from something when we know it thoroughly. In the Majjhima Nikaya, which is the middle-length discourses of the Buddha, translated by Bhikkhu Nanamoli and Bhikkhu Bodhi, you may have heard of them, a direct training in concentration is on the abandonment of the five hindrances. The five hindrances, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, remorse and doubt, are the primary obstacles to meditative development and their removal is therefore essential for the mind to be brought to a state of calm and unification. So those words directly translated from the Buddha, it is said. Joseph Goldstein in his book, From One Dharma, consciousness is the knowing factor of the mind. Knowing does not refer to knowledge we acquire about something, like learning to drive a car or taking a course in chemistry, but rather to the immediate, direct cognizing of the object itself, knowing a sight, a sound, a thought. We may hear a sound and then think, bird. The first moments of consciousness would be the knowing of the sound. We call this delusion of mind ignorance. Sometimes consciousness is free of attachment and clinging, free of delusion. This mind is called wisdom mind or awareness. I think Jill spoke to that at some point today in terms of the root being this clinging that we're so inclined to engage with life with, even when we know it's impermanent. The Buddha used many terms to describe these states of delusion, hindrances, defilements, floods, taints, bonds, and fetters. So he's serious about this. That's six names. It is important to notice the contraction of mind when these deluded states are present because each of these moments is really a moment of suffering. All of these hindrances, desire, anger, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt, are all mental factors. They are not self. They are not some personal failures of our ability or capacity to fully inhabit the practice. They are impersonal factors functioning in their own way. In talking about the hindrances, one of the similes given illustrates the effect of these different obstructions in the mind. So if you imagine a pond of clear water, since desire is like the water becoming colored with pretty dyes, we become entranced with the beauty and the intricacy of the color, and so do not look to the depths. 
anger or ill will or aversion is like boiling water. Water that is boiling is very turbulent. You cannot see through to the bottom. This kind of turbulence in the mind, the violent reaction of hatred and aversion is a great obstacle to understanding. Sloth and torpor is like the pond of water covered with algae, very dense. We are totally unable to see or penetrate to the bottom because you can't see through the algae. It is a very heavy mind. Restlessness and worry are like a pond when windswept. The surface of the water is agitated by strong winds. When influenced by restlessness and worry, insight becomes impossible because the mind is not centered or calm. Doubt is like the water when muddied. Wisdom is obscured by murkiness and cloudiness. The Buddha said, when these five hindrances are unabandoned in themselves, a bhikkhu sees them respectively as a debt, a disease, a prison house, enslavement, and a road across a desert. But when these five hindrances have been abandoned in themselves, they see that as freedom from debt, healthiness, release from prison, freedom from slavery, and a land of safety. These metaphors are not simply philosophical concepts. They actually reflect the feeling of the mind contracted in ignorance or released in wisdom. Some of you, if not most of you, have probably heard the story in the night of the Buddha's awakening how Mara the Buddhist personification of temptation and distraction comes to him time and time again in an attempt to undo the newly dawned freedom the Buddha achieved. Each time Mara arrives, the Buddha simply says, Mara, I see you. After this happening time and time again, Mara relinquishes the notion that the Buddha will be turned around from his awakened state and flees. So in our own minds and hearts, recognizing or seeing Mara for the empty illusions and deluded thoughts and perceptions becomes an effective way in bringing freedom from Mara. Rumi says, liberation through non-clinging. Live in the nowhere you come from, even though you have an address here. Although there can be numerous hindrances, there are the five traditionally identified as particularly important for those of us taking this particular journey of Buddhist practice of mindfulness and meditation. Sooner or later, all of us have to address the hindrances. Often, it's sooner and later. 
because of how frequently they occur. These obstructing mind states should not be viewed as unfortunate occurrences, but rather as an opportunity to strengthen mindfulness, concentration, understanding, and non-clinging. Without dedication to working with the hindrances, one can be derailed from one's practice. From the Anattarun Nikaya, Anattarun Nikaya. There are five impurities of gold impaired by which it is not pliant and wildy, lacks radiance, is brittle, and cannot be wrought well. What are these five impurities? Iron, copper, tin, lead, and silver. But if the gold has been freed from these five impurities, then it will be pliant and wieldy, radiant and firm, and can be wrought well. Whatever ornaments one wishes to make from it, be it earrings, a necklace, or a golden chain, it will serve that purpose. Similarly, there are five impurities of the mind impaired by which the mind is not pliant and wieldy, lacks radiant lucidity and firmness, and cannot concentrate well upon the eradication of the taints. What are these five impurities? They are sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and remorse, and skeptical doubt. But if the mind is freed of these five impurities, it will be pliant and wieldy, will have radiant lucidity and firmness, and will concentrate well upon the eradication of the taints. Whatever state realizable by the higher mental faculties, one may direct the mind to, one will, in each case, acquire the capacity of realization. These five hindrances or workings of the mind can hinder our ability to see clearly and our capacity to develop a stable, concentrated mind. So, firstly, there's sensual desire, and I say firstly, not that there's, you know, we have, a, we talked about this in one of the groups today. There's a lot of lists in Buddhism, and it's not because the lists are a hierarchical representation of the concepts and distinctions that the Buddha is talking about. There are lists because the monks had to memorize what he was saying, and that made it easy to do that. But we've now, over all these years, have these lists that feel and look like they're hierarchical, and that's not the case. So, like the Brahma Viharas, you know, uh, like these hindrances, just to remember that. So there's sensual desire. The mind wanting something pleasurable, grasping after sense objects. This hindrance keeps the mind looking outward, searching after this object or that in an agitated and unbalanced way. Sensual desire can be for food, comfort, 
physical and sexual experiences, sounds, smells, sights, and other sense pleasures. It is the very nature of sense desire that they can never be satisfied. There is no end to the seeking. Living without wants, wishes, motivations, or aspirations is impossible. However, to approach freedom, we must emphasize skillful desires and distinguish the healthy, useful desires from the unhealthy ones. We become wise about harmful desires and understand the more we value freedom and its pleasures, the more likely freedom guides us in deciding which desires or aspirations we allow to guide our lives. Then there's ill will or aversion. The mind is filled with dislike, the condemning mind, anger, fury, resentment, hatred, annoyance, aversion, irritation, vexation, loathing, spite, resistance, avoidance, criticalness, boredom, complaining, grudge, fearfulness. Whew! <laughs> Want a slice of that? <laughs> so clearly aversion is a very common and um, manifest in a myriad numbers of ways. It is the mind that strikes against the object and wants to get rid of it. The mind is burning with desire or burning up. Um, my husband, so this is an extreme, an extreme story of aversion. Um, and he gave me permission to tell this story. So my husband is a um, combat Vietnam vet. And uh, back when he was a young man, uh, he joined the army, which many young men did at that time. It was just when the services were starting to become um, gender integrated. But a lot of people joined the service, even though it was during the Vietnam War era, joined the service as a way up socioeconomically, as a way to gain skills and all of this. So here's this Brooklyn boy graduating from high school and comes from a working class family and didn't quite know what he wanted to do. So he said, well, I'll join the Army. Now, if you join, you won't get sent to Vietnam because we had the draft back then. So he joined the Army, and he did his basic training, and uh, he was uh, uh, engaged in the Army as a clerk. So he worked in the office, and like the clerk is a really cool job because you give people their mail, like people look forward to seeing you, you know, you've got some air condition going on and all that. So that was what his training was. That was his uh, role in the service. And uh, when he got his orders in terms of where he was going to be stationed, he was sent to Alaska. So this is a guy from Brooklyn. He was sent to Alaska. It was very cold in Alaska. <laughs> It was very cold in Alaska, and the days lasted forever, and the nights lasted forever. So here's this Brooklyn guy, 19, 20 years old, 
working in the office in some state that he had no relationship to whatsoever. He said the, 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 um, the turnkey moment was when he got up one morning, because you have to have those really heavy shades to block the daylight out. Got up one morning and he raised the shades and there was a big ass moose right there in his window. And he's like, I'm out of here. This is not going to work for me. So he went to the, um, I forget, the, the, uh, the other office guy who was a little higher than him, um, who was an assistant to the lieutenant or the captain, to put in for a transfer. So the guy was like, okay, Williams, you know, I'll, I'll do what I can. I'll make sure he sees this and see if we can't get you transferred out of here because I know it's really not working for you. And the guy comes back a couple of days later and he says, well, the only place that they're giving transfers to right now is Vietnam. Aversion. Remember, this is what's happening here. So my husband says, well, Vietnam, a clerk, I'll be in Hanoi, I'll be in an office, I'll be, it'll be hot. So okay, I'll, I'll take that, I'll, I'll, I'll go to Vietnam. So he gets transferred to Vietnam. The third weekend, his managing officer comes to him and he says, Williams, your grade is being changed. We're going to make you a radio man, and you're going out in the field. So here he becomes basically a target. Like during that's communications. The radio is the guy that carries the radio on his back. So you're a target. And um, but when you're in the army, you have to follow orders. You, you know, no choice but to follow orders. So. Um, he became the radio man and was uh, in country in combat for a year and a half and made it out alive and intactness enough with a decent sense of humor and a kind heart. But you look to see, remember that story? <laughs> Next time you feel averse to something and uh, understand that it can get you where you don't think you want to go. You know, or never imagined that you might be. Wisdom is acquired through familiarity, and one of the tasks in mindfulness practice is to become familiar with the hindrances. With ill will or aversion, this requires a willingness to shift attention away from whatever we are hostile towards and instead turn it towards the experience of ill will itself. It can be useful to be mindful of it in a non-judgmental and non-reactive way. It can be helpful to hold the ill will in our focus without acting on it or pushing it away. Being mindful of how ill will feels physically. Perhaps examining the beliefs that underlie the ill will. How might we believe aversion will be beneficial or justified? What assumptions do we believe about how things are supposed to be? What might ill will be covering? Frustrated desire, fear, 
embarrassment, with no aversion to aversion, mindfulness can make us independent of aversion. Sloth and torpor. A lot of conversations been going on about sloth and torpor. The mind is sleepy or too apathetic to see clearly. Sluggishness, laziness of mind, a mind that is heavy or dull. Sloth and torpor can arise from the absence of desire and aversion. The lack of stimulation that accompanies constant desire and aversion can de be deflating and even depressing. And I'm sure all of you are aware that we are in a society that is addicted to drama and stimulation. So it's a setup. Not understandable then that you'd come into a retreat and there's a lack of stimulation, there's a lack of drama, there's a lack of doing, and sloth and torpor or sleepiness would show up, low energy would show up. Sloth and torpor are forces in the mind and body that drain vitality and limit effort. Sloth manifests as a physical absence of vitality. The body may feel heavy, lethargic, weak. When this hindrance is strong, there's not even enough mindfulness to know we have fallen into it. Sloth and torpor refers to low energy states related to an attitude we are holding. Discouragement, frustration, boredom, indifference, giving up, hopelessness, and resistance are some of the mind states that cause sloth and torpor. Although sloth and torpor may be present, it does not mean that energy is not available, but just that we are not accessing it. Our evaluations and reactions lead to this lethargy. Learning how to mindfully watch our thoughts instead of actively participating in them, can effectively stop them from draining our energy. Then there's restlessness and worry. The mind is too anxious to stay steady. Regret, agitation, jumping from one object to another without any mindfulness. A state of over-excitement. What are some of the causes and conditions that give rise to restlessness? Watching too much TV, being too engaged in the internet, the computer, our phones, all of these contribute to an increased sense of restlessness. The overstimulation of social media, not taking enough time to pause, the tyranny of time overextension, dissatisfaction, frustrated desire, and pent-up aversion are also common causes of agitation. Being mindful of the cause is helpful. When pain is the cause of the restlessness, the pain should be addressed, whether it be physical, emotional, or psychological. 
when thinking is a big part of restlessness, it can be useful to relax the thinking muscle. It can be useful to cultivate contentment, breathe through the restlessness for calming, releasing tension or constriction in breathing can be relaxing. The more attention given to breathing, the less attention is available to fuel restlessness and worry. It's also really important, this is kind of like basic, I should say maybe common sense, natural understanding that it's important to have enough exercise, sleep, good nutrition, because all of those things or lack thereof can encourage restlessness. You know, I know um, for some people, even um, there's many of you all who are here who are retired, but um, if you hearken back to when you were part of the working world, and in that sense, a lot of times you just even work through lunch. You don't, didn't even stop to have lunch, you know? You come home and you grab a quick bite and then you're off to something else. And all of that pays a toll and sets up particular conditions. Then lastly in this list of five is doubt or skeptical doubt. A lack of faith that you can stay mindful of what is true and to act skillfully. Doubt freezes the mind and undercuts your ability to cope with all the other hindrances. What am I doing here? What's going on? Why did I come? I can't do this. It's too hard. I'm bored. Doubt distances us from the present moment, so bringing mindfulness can be helpful in shifting from doubt. Although there are seven factors included in the five hindrances, four are always paired. Gil Fransdale suggests that one explanation for this is that the paired items represent closely related physical and mental factors. The first two hindrances are related by being opposite qualities, desire and ill will, desire and aversion attachment and aversion. They are both forms of wanting, although opposite sides of the same coin. Desire seeks to have something, whereas ill will wants to push something away. In a similar way, the third and fourth hindrances are related by being opposite qualities. They both relate to or involve levels of energy, or vitality. Sloth and torpor are low energy states, while restlessness and worry are high energy states. This fifth hindrance, doubt, is not specifically connected to any of the others. However, doubt is often entwined with any combination of the other hindrances and can and does cast an influence in many ways on our whole being. When the hindrances are strong, we lose our ability to see clearly. These hindrances cloud our mind and prevent us from knowing the cause 
of our suffering. The hindrances are not only present in meditation, but actually permeate our daily lives to varying degrees and can cast a powerful influence on our lives. The Buddha taught that our minds are usually clouded with one or more of the hindrances, but because this is such a normal experience, we hardly notice it. He also said that the mind's natural state is clear, luminous, and free of any hindrances. Mindfulness practice returns the mind to this free state. When the mind is not obscured by hindrances, attachment doesn't arise and your mind is willing and able to be with what is. We are not caught in wanting anything, wanting to become anything, or wanting to get rid of anything. Although it is probable that this state has shown up many times in your life, if you are unaware and not mindful, when it is occurring, the impact is minimal. <laughs> the bliss of not knowing, I guess. I don't know. In those moments in which your mind is free from hindrances, you are not in a reactive state. You are seeing things more clearly and have access to intuitive wisdom. When we practice and repeat the process of examination over and over within this practice, through the years, all types of desire gradually have less impact on our sense of well-being. So it's not saying that desire disappears, but the capacity to impact or influence us in terms of our actions, our thoughts, our behaviors, lessens. We become less and less defined by our desires. They simply come and go. Some desires we respond to, those desires we do not respond to, may persist as a presence in our mind, but they don't take over the mind, pull us into a contracted state, put us in a bad mood, or spoil our attitude towards life. Strong addiction to sense pleasure or ill will can cause us humans to do things and make choices we regret for decades or even lifetimes. Actions motivated by the hindrances can be detrimental to ourselves, to others, and even to our whole society. This lack of clarity can cause us to misunderstand which thoughts, what words and actions are harmful and which are beneficial. If we purify the mind of the hindrances, then the mind is no longer stiff and rigid. It becomes fluid wieldy, and can be shaped into something beautiful. The hindrances can also be seen as strategies, strategies we use when we are challenged or uncomfortable. 
in psychological terms, defenses. How might we deal with these difficult mind states that obstruct us on our journey on this path? Recognize them. See them clearly in each moment. That recognition is the most powerful, effective way of overcoming them. Recognition leads to mindfulness. Mindfulness is the most effective way of dealing with the hindrances. Are you starting to see the loop? Remember, all the hindrances are impermanent mental factors or thoughts, states that arise in the mind from conditioning. They arise and they pass away like clouds in the sky. However, when caught in the web of not seeing, we believe they are fixed and permanent. If we are mindful of them when they arise and do not react or identify with them, they pass through the mind without creating any disturbance. Gil Fransdell offers us a way to take the hindrances into our mindfulness practice, which consists of five different aspects. The acronym for this tool is BELLA, B-E-L-L-A, which translates into English as beautiful. He says the acronym describes the mind that is revealed when the hindrances are overcome and mindfulness becomes strong. So Bella, B, B-E. When a hindrance appears, it is useful to first let it be. No acting on it or reacting to it. It is the training in staying present for our experience without being in conflict with it. No need to be discouraged, angry, or self-critical when faced with a hindrance. Letting a hindrance be is a practice of finding an inner stability in the face of destabilizing forces. Letting it be involves recognizing and acknowledging the hindrance. The clearer the recognition, and mindfulness, the more we pull ourselves out of the web of confusion and non-clear seeing. This brings great freedom. Recognition also ensures our practice stays honest and realistic. Bella, E, examine. This is said to be the most important aspect of our practice with the hindrances. Exploring the hindrances involves recognizing the components. It's physical, energetic, cognitive, and motivational aspects. For example, if we take sense desire and deconstruct it physically, it may be experienced as a leaning forward, a tightening of the solar plexus, or a sense of lightness. Energetically, it may involve pressure, a sense of restlessness, or an upsurging of vitality. Emotionally, since desire may invoke pleasant emotions like delight, excitement, or eagerness. 
cognitively, since desire may involve beliefs and stories we tell ourselves, and motivationally, since desire may come as a strong impulse to act or cling or fix. Learning how hindrances arise, how they are removed, and how they can be prevented from arising requires attention and discernment. The Buddhist word that is translated into hindrances also has the meaning of covering. We can examine what the hindrances are masking. For example, since desire can be covering loneliness, ill will can be covering frustrated desire, sloth and torpor can be covering fear, Restlessness and worry can be covering wanting and approval, and doubt can be covering a reluctance to commit. Examine the hindrance itself, its absence, how it arises, how it is removed, and how to prevent it from arising again. Bella, L, lesson, L-E-S-S-E-N. Lessen its strength. Relaxing both the body and mind are good ways to lessen the intensity of strong bouts with a hindrance. If a hindrance is overwhelming, lessening its power might require removing yourself from the situations that reinforce it or direct one's attention to something that has a calming effect. Lots of that here, the birds, the trees, the water, the sky. Focusing on an antidote to a hindrance can be helpful as well. For example, cultivating loving kindness can help lessen ill will. Bella, second L, let go. Once we understand a hindrance, it can be appropriate to let go of it. For example, letting go of the thinking that perpetuates the hindrance. This ability to let go of the hindrance increases with practice. Letting go is like a muscle which grows stronger with practice and time. Bella A. Appreciate. When a hindrance is no longer present, It is useful to take time to experience its absence, to be mindful and present without being hijacked by a hindrance is a joy. Relief that arises when the mind is free of hindrance is a delight. Unhindered attention is a treasure. Bella, be, examine, lesson, let go. Appreciate. Tanisara and Kitasaro from Listening to the Heart say, unwise attention is what arouses sensual desire and the other hindrances, and wise attention is what dispels them. With practice, mindfulness eventually becomes stronger than the power of the hindrances.
Choosing to be mindful of a hindrance is a significant move towards being free of it. One of the most significant turning points in practice with the hindrances is when we choose freedom over being hindered. In closing, I'll just read this short piece by the Thai forest monk Ajahn Chah. In ending, I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With the proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. This that we have spoken of today is what I feel is helpful to you. And if you really do it, you can come to the end of all doubt. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. From now on, it's up to you. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment. Let the practice release your heart from fear. Let the quieting of your mind and the clear seeing of the truth release you from confusion and clinging. Let understanding and acceptance of the way things are in this moment flower the fruit of wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.